This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. The banking crisis in the United States is getting worse. The world's second largest food exporter is destroying its food exports. The world's next great economy reaches out. And a hunger strike leads to death. These stories and the coronation of a British king ahead on Trumpet Hour. We can review. Good afternoon, Trumpet Hour listeners here in Edmond, Oklahoma, across the country and around the world listening online. I'm Philip Nice, and this is our Week in Review edition of the show and our Coronation Eve edition, if you will. Trumpet Hour airs every Wednesday as well, whence we take more time and dive more deeply into national news, world news, history, and beyond. And this week, listeners traveled through the entire history of Britain and looked at the claim that Great Britain was not only the largest empire in the history of the world, but also its best. You're welcome to investigate that claim at thetrumpet.com slash radio. Look for the Trumpet Hour episode, Britain, Tale of Three Coronations. And with the coronation now about 13 hours away at the time of the first airing of this program, we will devote the last segment of the show to discussing this next, and could it be the last, crowning of a British monarch. But first, as this show has done for about the past 400 weekends, we summarize the main stories of the week from Anglo-America, the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. Covering Anglo-America today is Andrew Miller. Hello. Covering the Middle East is Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Covering Europe is Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And covering Asia is Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. Mr. Miller, today we'll start with Anglo-American news. Anglo, of course, signifying Angle land, as we talked about Wednesday, England, uh, when you took us through 2,000 years of history in about six minutes uh, of, of early British history. So your quarter of the globe concerns England and English-speaking countries, including the United States. What have been some of the main headlines this week? Yeah, well, it's definitely been a a big week for Anglo-American news uh, around the globe. The White House announced that the U.S. would be deploying 1,500 troops to the southern border in anticipation of an illegal immigration surge after Title 42 ends. The House Intelligence Committee announced that the FBI has evidence that Biden committed bribery when he was vice president. The Twitter files announced that 400 organizations worldwide are colluding to censor the flow of information. And Canada's foreign minister says the country is now considering expelling Chinese diplomats after an intelligence agency report saying one of them plotted to intimidate the Hong Kong relatives of a Canadian lawmaker. We referred to the coronation of the King of England tomorrow, but besides that, what is the main story from the Anglosphere that you want to share? Uh, The main story is something I've touched on quite a lot this month, and this is basically the banking collapse of 2023. I'm actually really surprised this morning that um, PacWest hasn't collapsed yet. it may yet collapse before this program airs, or if not that, probably at least before next week's program airs. But uh, just looking back over the past two months, actually three of the five biggest bank failures in U.S. history have occurred in the past two months. 
And if PacWest goes down this week, that would actually be the sixth biggest bank failure. So very soon we might be saying that four of the six biggest bank failures in U.S. history have happened this year. Uh, it's really easy to underestimate just how <laughs> the mag, the size of some of these banks going down, uh, not counting what may or may not happen with PacWest. Uh, Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, and First Republic Bank, which have already collapsed, had about $550 billion in assets. And so that's more than uh, Washington Mutual and all the 25 banks that collapsed during the 2008 recession. So this banking collapse is, is already bigger than what happened in 2008 uh, and is still growing. Uh, I think the reason it doesn't feel <laughs> is like the world's ending so much in 2008 is back in those days there was actually a question uh, over whether they were going to allow these banks to actually fail or not. Where in this case, the government's pretty much stepped in and nationalized Signature banks and Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Chase Bank stepped in and bought First Republic Bank. And PacWest uh, is already entertaining offers <laughs> to see if a bigger bank can't buy them out before they collapse. So the, the really the big story of the, <laughs> the year in the financial sector is just the nationalization and centralization of banks. They're either being taken over by the government or gobbled up by bigger banks is basically financial power in America goes from a, a wide uh, like grassroots base heavy model to just having a few financial elites at the top calling the shots. And that's something to keep an eye on. We've talked about that uh, with a variety of things. But if you can if you can look at it in terms of power, you said financial power. Where is the power flowing from and where is it flowing to? That's a good way of looking at it. Obviously, this has echoes of a similar banking crisis that a lot of us remember pretty well. How does it compare? Well, like I had uh, said earlier, it's already uh, bigger than the banking collapse of 2008. And there's some evidence that the government may be doing this uh, on purpose in order to nationalize and centralize uh, banks. I mean, the uh, Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve obviously knows that uh, he hiked interest rates this week for the 10th time uh, since uh, March last year. And he obviously knows these interest rate hikes are going to push more and more smaller banks out of business. Uh, he's using the uh, excuse of combating inflation, but they may not even do that as well as he thinks. We actually have a pretty uh, good clip here from uh, financial analyst Peter Schiff that explains uh, why this isn't going to combat inflation uh, as well as Jerome Powell thinks and, and why this is financial crisis is worse than 2008. You know, the elephant in the room with respect to inflation is the, the fiscal policy. It's the debt, not the ceiling, but the fact that we're running these massive deficits. And until the federal government reduces spending, these quarter point increases are going to be completely ineffective. And the problem is Powell refuses to call Congress out and mention that the driving force behind all the inflation that they've been creating is reckless government spending. And as long as the government keeps spending, inflation is going to get worse. And so is the current financial crisis. And nobody wants to admit we're in a financial crisis. It is worse than the one we had in 2008. It's just getting started. Ultimately, the Fed is going to cut, but it's going to cut as inflation is accelerating. 
Yeah. So, and as you heard right there, he's like said, basically, government spending is the root cause behind inflation. Uh, we're spending a trillion dollars more than we tax, and so you're having to borrow or print money, uh, expand the money supply, and creating more dollars makes all dollars worth less. Uh, the interest rate hikes are a temporary fix by encouraging people to pull money out of circulation and stash them in a savings account someplace. Uh, but, but but doesn't hiking interest rates discourage government spending by making that more expensive? Yeah, well, there'd be that would be the government um, equivalent of what consumers are doing. Either, either the government or the consumers, like I said, you take money, you spend less, you save more, it pulls money from circulation, the inflation comes down, uh, but it goes away as soon as you stop hiking interest rates. And so like they're saying- I guess that's what my question revolves around is if these interest rate hikes are not likely to do anything, isn't the solution, are we saying the Fed needs to hike interest rates more? Are we, like That feels like the natural conclusion to me, I guess. If they want inflation to go down, hike interest rates more or cut government spending. And so what he's saying there is like said said if you're if you hike interest rates more is like you will you will keep tamping down inflation right now what Jerome Powell's uh, argument is is that you keep uh, we're going to keep re- uh, tamping up interest rates until the inflation comes down and then cut the interest rates again in which case you'll spring right back to where you were before unless you've solved the longer term spending issues and meanwhile you have the consequences of increasingly higher interest rates. Right, which could, I mean, and that's why he's saying that we'll, we'll keep cutting interest rates and then cut them later when you've pushed the country into recession. Um, and which we, I think we saw that a little bit earlier <laughs> this year where they didn't cut interest rates, but for some reason they cut mortgage rates a little bit, just temporarily, then they stopped doing that. Uh, and just like that little cut in the mortgage rate, like housing prices started going right back up again. They'd been plateauing or coming down. So you can definitely see it's like, okay, as long as you keep doing this, you can tamp down the inflation. But as soon as you stop doing this or start cutting rates, the, the problem is going to come right back unless you uh, just want to keep uh, 5% Fed interest rates for the rest of eternity or cut government spending so you can actually bring the rates down again. So it appears that the American economy might have a very big problem <laughs> that that uh, raising interest rates a little bit uh, is is barely a Band-Aid. Right. You're definitely between a rock and a hard place to where unless you're willing to cut government spending, <laughs> you're either going to keep pushing the country towards recession by hiking interest rates or bringing the inflation crisis back by stepping them back down. And we know from um, uh, Bible prophecy that um, the, the economic conditions are, are going to get uh, worse. We'll put a chapter from our Heroes Right booklet in the show notes. Our financial 9-11 was prophesied uh, that goes through um, a lot of what Mr. Armstrong said about economic crises in the end time. Uh, and... Uh, Oh, and I think even some of the prophecies in like Deuteronomy 28 about um, lending to strangers and them not lending to you. So debt problems uh, in end time Israelite nations. Our financial 9-11 was prophesied at thetrumpet.com. Thank you, Mr. Miller, for that update on Anglo-America. Richard Palmer, in addition to querying Andrew Miller there on the ramifications of U.S. interest rates, you have been keeping your eye on this week's developments in Europe. What have been the most significant ones? 
Well, the European Central Bank actually raised interest rates, but by not as much as people thought. This this is what prompted some of my questions to Andrew, because there's a whole lot of people over here in Europe basically saying we wish the European Central Bank took inflation as seriously as the Federal Reserve does. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see the outcome of these of these different strategies and uh Maybe by maybe the European Central Bank is setting up Europe for an even bigger crisis by not acting particularly decisively. Uh, you had the uh, former U.S. President Barack Obama visited Germany, where he spoke at a seventeen thousand strong uh, auditorium, which he didn't manage to sell out. I'll, I'll note at this right around the same time, you had Spiegel having a big splash about how terrified German politicians are about um, the potential of Donald Trump coming back in America. So it's interesting to see Mr. Obama continuing his relationship with Germany. He often he met with the, the current chancellor, the former chancellor, uh, and uh, he's historically been very popular over there. Uh, you had talking of presidential visits, the Czech and Slovakian presidents visiting Ukraine. So you've got uh, you know, Czechoslovakia used to be one country. They've now divorced, but the two of them are working together more militarily now. Uh, and also working together in Ukraine out of fear of Russia. And Ireland is pursuing a new hate crime law that's more extreme than just about any other I've heard about anywhere in the world that would criminalize not just hate speech, but possession of hate speech. So if I send you an email and the content of that email is deemed hate speech and you don't delete it quickly enough, you might be in trouble. Uh so it'll be interesting. It, it exposes some of this anti anti free speech uh, movement that's rising around the world, but particularly in Europe. So we are always keeping our eye on Barack Obama when he emerges for a speech like that, and that uh, is the first I've heard of that of such a uh, I don't know thought policing uh, law in Ireland. That's that's obviously something we want, to, we want to keep our eye on. What do you think we should focus in on this week, though? I want to talk about an EU, the EU approving a new Dutch farm buyback law. So I've written on this before. It's so mind-bogglingly stupid, frankly, that uh, it really does expose the attack on um, on a lot of our countries around the world. So. This law is going to be, I mean, I think everyone's been aware of the, 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 the Dutch farmers have done a good job of getting international media aware of their plight, where the Dutch government is trying to crack down on farms. It's part of EU legislation to deal with nitrogen poisoning or excess nitrogen in nature reserves and that kind of thing. The latest is that farmers near natural conservation areas will be offered 120% of the value of their farms. Uh, 100% of their dairy or pig farmers, otherwise 120%. Uh, and But to get this, they must also agree to close down and not restart farming anywhere else in the Netherlands or anywhere else in the EU. And, well, first of all, I think what's not mentioned in most news reporting here is, okay, this is the offer. You look at what's been happening in the Netherlands over the past few years, you know that all of the farmers are looking at this saying, okay, well, I can walk away with 120% of the value of my farm now. If I wait, it might just be confiscated and I might get nothing. And you can that, that that's a tough proposition for people. You can understand absolutely people wanting to hold on to farms that might have been in the family for generations and a lifestyle and traditions. Uh, and then 
but you can also understand their fear for their security of their family if they uh, if they refuse to follow through on this. But then this idea that I mean, if if this were purely about excess nitrogen in, in nature conservation areas, why have this ban on moving? That just makes no like okay. I I I could almost kind of understand something that says okay. We've got some unique natural habitats. There's some newt here that's found nowhere in the world. We don't want it to go extinct. So in this particular geographical area, we'll discourage certain types of farming. Maybe we'll buy out some farmers and we'll let those farmers go and use that money and buy another farm somewhere else where it's not going to affect this nature conservation area. Fine. Uh, but then to say you cannot farm anywhere else in the European Union, it's it's just a deliberate destruction of of the food supply and and it's just kind of mind-boggling as you say we should care for the earth and that is uh something that a lot of people believe in and that is being manipulated and 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 weaponized again uh, as we talked about before watch the flow of power uh you you see tractors and you think of farms and um but watch the flow of power and this is not a minor thing i i mentioned uh, to you before, Mr. Palmer, that when I've been watching this on the news, I've been thinking, oh, well, that's really symbolic and, and that's really bad for those particular farmers. Farming is not insignificant in the Netherlands. The, the, largest, uh, the largest agricultural exporter in the world is the United States. The second largest agricultural exporter in the entire world is the Netherlands. I mean, we think of the Dutch as exporting tulips, but it's a lot more significant than, than, than tulips and clogs. And I think it's directly part of this kind of this, this, this spiritual agenda, this attack on the West, this attack on what's really the nations of Israel, these descendants of Israel that have been promised massive blessings, that have been given massive blessings. And a lot of these blessings even revolve right around food, Micah 5 and verse 7 and talks about the whole world benefiting as a result of the agricultural blessings given to these nations. And you saw America being gifted the largest piece of contiguous farmland anywhere in the world in the form of the, the Mississippi Basin. And at the same time, you're seeing a real weaponization of the climate movement in ways that make no sense. You know, like, okay, we're not even going to try and move farming. We're just going to stop. I mean, we need food. It's not a case of just saying, well, we'll, we'll have less food. I mean, you see this in, in, in America where they'll shut down oil pipelines and things like that, only to ship in more oil from the Middle East that causes more environmental destruction, environmental rules that force factories to shift to China, where they cause much more pollution than they would have done had they remained in the West. Uh, and there really is an anti-Israel and fundamentally anti-God agenda behind this green movement and i think a lot of it looks good on the surface and there is a lot yeah we all want to preserve the planet and we all want to preserve nature and and nobody wants to go and concrete and tarmac over nature reserves or anything like that so it, it feels easy to uh, to agree on and so you know i'm not saying everybody that signed up to this this movement uh meets those characterizations that i just gave i think there's a lot of well-intentioned people there uh but they're deceived and that's the the spiritual agenda behind it we have a our trumpet editor-in-chief had an article what the paris climate agreement was really about uh about one of these monumental climate change agreements that goes into goes into that agenda and then i had an article in the uh 
trumpet print towards the end of last year, forced farm shutdowns coming to your country. And that even goes shows how the radical left in the U.S. are embracing similar policies to what you're seeing in the Netherlands. Uh, there were also big protests in Slovenia, for example, this week as the EU tries to roll this out in other countries, too. So this is not even just a, a Dutch phenomenon. And, and like we've said, what happens in the Netherlands, because they're such a, a food powerhouse, affects the whole world. Before what? we move on, I'd just like to mention, um, I don't think this is purely, we could just say this is purely irrational, purely bent on destruction. When you think of the historical parallels, the first thing that pops into my mind is you look at what happened in the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin and his war on the so-called kulaks, this made-up, uh, shall we say, demographic of rich Ukrainian farmers, uh, that Ukraine's obviously a very, also a very highly productive agricultural region as uh, wheat, uh, wheat prices and wheat, uh, wheat exports from the current war show. And it's also very uh, a region that's very hostile to Russia. What Stalin did was he confiscated all the land from these wealthy farmers. He uh, His regime mismanaged it. Uh, the wheat production and wheat distribution absolutely collapsed. Millions of people died. You consider that irrational, but in a sense, it was just another extension of the total grab for power in this case, in that case by Joseph Stalin over a part of his empire he thought wasn't going to be particularly loyal to the point where everybody relied on him, Stalin, personally for food. And if you think about what another prophecy we've talked about on this show often is Europe coming together as a super state. If you got the whole EU signing up on this deal and saying, you think about some other countries from other parts of the EU thinking, okay, we'd want these Dutch farmers coming to us. Like they'll bring their expertise over, they'll make us a lot of money. But they're on board with this as well. The EU, of course, is a, sup is a supranational organization that's been trying to grab power from individual member states any way it can. And this is just another way on how this artificial federal government, if you will, is imposing its will on what are supposed to be nominally sovereign states. So again, we want to point you to thetrumpet.com, what the Paris Climate Agreement was really about, what the Paris Climate Agreement was really about and also forced farm shutdowns coming to your country. Again, watch the flow of power. That's the fundamental point here. Is it with the individual or is it flowing toward a small group of elites? As you say there, Mihailo Zekic, how far can it go? I mean, how bad could it get? Modern people allowed themselves to become dependent on the state to even eat. The state in that case, in the case of Joseph Stalin, as you mentioned there, an extreme example, the state literally starved many of them. And then you look at this, and as you say there, Richard Palmer, the facts on this show, this is not fundamentally about caring for the earth. The policies are not all designed to care for the earth. So this is a different world we are living in. This is just different. The world you lived in before is is no longer uh, thank you for drawing our attention to this issue, Mr. Palmer. You're listening to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We will be right back. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We've covered the top stories this week in Anglo-America and Europe. Now we move to the Eastern Hemisphere. 
Jeremiah Jacques, as Americans are managing to destroy their own banks and as the Dutch are managing to destroy their own food, what has been developing in Asia? Well, one big story was that Russia said on Wednesday that the U.S. masterminded a drone attack on the Kremlin that was intended to assassinate Vladimir Putin. So, you know, the, the claim is ludicrous since the drones seem to be carrying about as much gunpowder as a Roman candle. So, you know, Putin would have had to have been sunbathing on the roof of the Kremlin at 3 a.m., by the way, in order for this to even give him a minor burn. So there were some other suspicious okay. factors as well, just showing that this was almost certainly a false flag, uh, something that Russia orchestrated that it will use to maybe justify the cancellation of military parades or to justify some kind of escalation in the war or maybe just to be able to tell the domestic audience that you know putin has outfoxed the mighty americans and ukrainians just kind of a victory to point to to boost the the um, abysmal morale of the russians and to help putin kind of get attention off of the failures of russia's war um, then another interesting story is that china and india actually voted in the un this week for the first time to condemn russia's aggression in ukraine so you know it's just words and may not mean too much but at the same time up until now Russian media and analysts around the world have really played up all of the previous UN votes when China and India supported Russia. So it's not entirely insignificant, I think, to see the Chinese and Indians seeming to kind of lose patience with Russia. They're anxious for the world economy to get back to business as usual. And so maybe they're starting to dial back that support. Uh, then one other quick one that I'll mention here is that the South China Sea is really heating up. The The Chinese Coast Guard is increasingly harassing Philippine vessels in Philippine parts of the sea. And this may be because the uh, the U.S. is significantly boosting military ties with the Philippines right now. And, and of course, China's furious about that because China wants to be free to take over that whole area. So it's heating up there and there's a lot for us to keep an eye on. So China changing, condemning Russia's war in Ukraine, That's that's a change. Uh, so we've seen China support Russia. We've drawn attention to that. Now you see them back off, as you mentioned. And this is why you need some kind of guide to know what is significant, what's not, what might be a feint, what's not, what to look for in these relationships. Because we're always talking about these issues. These are enormous issues, and they could go one way, they could go the other, and you need a guide. But uh, besides that, what is the biggest story in all of Asia at this moment, in your opinion? Well, I would say it's a, it's one involving China's Belt and Road Initiative. We've spoken, you know, on numerous episodes of Trumpet Hour over the years about this Belt and Road Initiative. It's this globe-spanning network of all kinds of infrastructure projects, road, rail, ports, bridges, even internet infrastructure. And it's all designed to better connect the global economy to China. China wants to be at the center. And so China's been building all of that for about a decade now. And they've invested about a trillion dollars so far into this initiative. And this week, China announced the most expensive and ambitious BRI or Belt and Road Initiative project yet. And it is a railway that starts in China's Xinjiang region, right on the China-Pakistan border. And it runs all the way down through Pakistan and down to Gwadar Port on the Arabian Sea. Gwadar Port is something that the Chinese played a major role in developing, and they actually control a large part of it. So you can see why they'd like to better connect China's territory to this port. But altogether, to get all the way from China to Gwadar Port on the Arabian Sea, 
And when you include all the various detours and, you know, city connections, they'll be building about 1,860 miles of rail. And this will cost an estimated $57.7 billion. So, you know, a really hefty price tag there. But when you consider the difficult terrain that this has to cut through and just the sheer length of it, it's easy to see why it's so expensive. And the uh, the Chinese have calculated that as pricey as it is, this railway is worth it because of what it gives to the Chinese. The Belt and Road Initiative. I remember Richard Palmer, you wrote an article on that and... Uh, years ago and reading that article i actually felt fear and uh, obviously we cover a lot of dangerous uh, developments that's basically all we cover are dangerous developments so what's so fearsome about locomotives and bridges and container ships and freight carriage well it's the billions and billions and billions of dollars that they're worth and and the power that that brings uh to to whatever country uh has that infrastructure and has that economic power. So Jeremiah Jacques, you've been watching this closely for years and years. Tell us, uh, in short, why is China willing to spend so much on this project? Sure. Yeah. Well, part of it is just about more efficient trade. You know, better Belt and Road infrastructure means China will be better connected to the the trade routes on the Arabian Sea, you know, down through Pakistan there. That's a hub where you could say the belt meets the road in the Belt and Road Initiative. So it means lower costs for bringing goods of all kinds into and out of China. But this particular railway actually goes beyond that because its specific location will help China to kind of safeguard against one of its greatest fears, and that is a potential U.S. naval blockade in the South China Sea. You know, without Guadar port and the rail linking China to it, a U.S. naval blockade in the South China Sea would have posed a serious threat to China, possibly even an existential one. You know, China's economy depends on bringing Middle Eastern oil in, bringing all kinds of uh, iron ore and copper ore in, and also food. We spoke um, a moment ago about the largest food exporters, the U.S. and Netherlands. Well, China is the world's largest food importer. They bring more food into their country than any other nation to feed those 1.4 billion people. So China is just utterly dependent on being able to bring in all of that energy and food and many raw materials and to export, you know, what it manufactures just in order to power its economy. And so you can see why they would be so terrified of the notion of America blockading their eastern coast or some of the trade routes around, you know, Malaysia and Indonesia that lead to China's east coast. But now with this rail network, China has an alternative route, you know, an alternative route for bringing goods into China. Even if America did team up with South Korea, the Philippines, Japan, Taiwan, and others to blockade China. Uh, Now the Chinese have this alternate route. And then beyond that, there are also specific military applications, especially relating to Port Gwadar. Building a naval base at Gwadar is expected to be a major part of China's Belt and Road Initiative and expected to give China a strategic advantage. This base will complement the Chinese base at Djibouti and strengthen China's foothold in the Indian Ocean. Reports that China will be building a naval base at Gwadar had first emerged in early 2018, but the plan had never been confirmed officially. Speculations have long been rife that China would be eyeing a base at Gwadar as a neutralizer to India's access to the Shahabar port in Iran. Both Gwadar and Shahabar are important points in a global trade route leading into Central Asia. 
That was World is One News and just shows the strategic implications of China's increasing dominance over Pakistan and specifically its military presence there on Gwadar port. This is, it is becoming a Chinese naval base. And so it has big implications for China's ambitions of regional and even global hegemony. So America has an extensive trade network, to say the least. Europe has an extensive trade network. Why worry? Why fear China's still incomplete extensive trade network? Well, there's a passage in uh, Revelation 16 about this huge alliance of Asian nations that will come together in the near future, and it'll play a, a central role in World War III. The scriptures show that this alliance will be led by Russia, with China in, in a position of junior leadership, and those two nations will pull several other countries into this block and kind of amalgamate all of their militaries into this force of 200 million men, far more than any army ever assembled, you know, in mankind's blood-saturated history. So just a, a stunningly massive force that could only really emerge out of these extremely populous Asian nations. Um, it's hard to say for sure if Pakistan will be in that massive group, but there is a passage in Ezekiel 38 that gives some ancient names for the main peoples who make up modern India and Pakistan, saying that those peoples will be part of the Asian alliance. So it could be that that's only talking about the Indian parts of those peoples, but I think that the fact that China and Pakistan are drawing so close with projects like this railway and so many other infrastructure and trade deals, that could be laying the groundwork for Pakistan to also be a part of that multinational Asian bloc. And we have a booklet, it's called Russia and China in Prophecy, that takes a very careful look at all of the Bible passages about this future alliance and just helps readers to see how current events happening in the world right now are creating the conditions for that Kings of the East force to take shape. China's Belt and Road Initiative, enormous extensive rail and highway belt, enormous extensive roads through the sea, which means enormous amounts of materials, energy, goods flowing into and out of China and Asia. Thank you, Jeremiah Jacques, for highlighting something that's often overlooked for all its extent and for all its enormity, and that is going to change the world even further. Trumpet Hour knows where to look for world-changing developments. And speaking of trade and energy, not to mention the factor of religious fervor, the region to monitor perhaps the most for, world, for a world-changing development, a world-changing spark, is the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, bring us up to date on the first week of May 2023 in the Middle East. Well, uh, I guess this is technically last week, but after we recorded last show, last Saturday, uh, Turkey has claimed to kill the current leader of ISIS or the Islamic State in Syria. Remember them? Uh, we obviously, a few years back, ISIS was uh, uh, causing, making a lot more waves in the news cycle with uh, taking over their territory. At the time, we were writing that the ISIS uh, insurgency is a distraction from other problems in the Middle East. And lo and behold, it seems like every six months a new leader of theirs gets taken out and uh, no, nothing really changes in the Middle East. They seem to be a good punching bag for uh, militaries to claim, look, we just took out an important terrorist when not, they're not really doing too much anymore. Um, they're still fighting in Sudan for our listeners that remember from last week. Uh, it's currently unknown how uh, the things are how things are going to play out there. Uh, there's been ceasefire agreements offered, ceasefire agreements broken. Uh, we'll continue to monitor that. And 
Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi visited Syria on Wednesday to meet with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. They're obviously partners with each other. But he also went to meet with um, representatives of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or PIJ, to very notorious terror groups that are active in the Gaza Strip, but also in places like the West Bank, Lebanon, etc. And that uh, the relationship between different members of those uh, groups, like the Palestinians, uh, different terror groups, is also something we keep an eye on here. So what's bigger news than the Islamic State, the disaster in Sudan, and Iran's relations with Syria and the Palestinians? Well, actually, that last story ties in pretty well with something that happened earlier this week. On Tuesday, Kader Adnan, who's a prominent leader within PIJ, died in an Israeli prison after over 80 days of a hunger strike. Um, Adnan was protesting administrative detention. That's basically, you could consider it um, being arrested without a warrant, but in in practical terms, it's Israel's way of arresting people without exposing confidential intelligence sources, which, I mean, you can imagine is pretty important as far as Israeli security is concerned. Um, he died, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, along with Hamas, responded by sending over 100 rockets into Israel within a 24-hour period. Israel retaliated by sending uh, in warplanes and helicopters to take care of, uh, shall we say, the militants. A truce has been brokered between the UN and and Qatar, uh, or rather with them acting as mediators. And so far, it's holding, um, uh, with as with anything else, especially in Gaza, it doesn't take much to uh, light the match and get the whole cycle of sending rockets over and Israel retaliating over and over again. But for now, it looks like the ceasefire is holding. So not an insignificant number of rockets and uh, retaliations, but as you say, the ceasefire seems to be in place. So why is this the most important thing to know about the Middle East this week, in your opinion? Well, a few things. Um, for one thing, Hamas has stated that they're supporting uh, or that they gave their, uh, shall we say, green light for PIJ to go ahead with this. Um, technically, on paper, they're supposed to be rival groups, but we see them increasingly coordinating with each other, and we even see that with the uh, meeting with the Iranian president as well. But um, to steal another lines of Mr. Palmer's, uh, one of the reasons this is so important is because it's so boring. You might not think a war is boring per se, but, I mean, these kinds of skirmishes between Israel and Gaza happen all the time but that's the most concerning thing about this it's gotten to the point now where israel and gaza can start chucking rockets at each other several times a year and the world almost doesn't seem to notice like oh they're at it again you think about some of the other crisis spots in the world like if north and south korea started doing this kind of thing everybody would be in panic mode right now like the world's gonna end or a serbian kosovo or something like that but at this point Something as, uh, I mean, obviously someone dying is not insignificant, but he was starving himself. If he went through over 80 days, this kind of thing wasn't unexpected. And yet that was enough of a trigger to get this whole rigmarole of sending rockets over 100 into civilian areas, I may add you, all over again. It's a never-ending war, and it just goes to show you how volatile 
the situation with the Palestinians and the Israelis are. If something like that, I mean, PIJ was the same group that started that uh, skirmish with Israel last summer that everybody had their fixation on. And now, again, we're just seeing these kinds of things become more and more and more common. And if anything, it goes to show how this crisis is not going away anytime soon. And if something as relatively minor as a hunger striker dying can start, potentially start another war, then anything can. So as you say, Mihailo Zekic, an event that tragically can be easily overlooked because it is becoming basically the new normal in the Middle East. Why is it that Trumpet Hour then watches what you might characterize as every little thing regarding the conflict or the conflicts in Israel? Well, for one thing, I think a lot of people forget just how high the stakes are when these kinds of flare-ups happen. Israel, I mean, they won't admit it, but it is a nuclear power. Um, groups like PIJ Hamas, meanwhile, they're sponsored by Iran. They have a lot of militants in places like Lebanon. This kind of thing could easily flare up from a border skirmish into a region-wide major war. But that's exactly why we watch it for another reason as well. Bible prophecy says that a flare-up between the Israelis and the Palestinians is going to lead to not just war in the Middle East, but worldwide. And it is going to involve nuclear weapons. Um, a prophecy we've gone to on this program before, Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 2, talk about the return of Christ and the chaos that comes immediately before that. Other prophecies show you, like Matthew 24, for example, uh, talk about it being war, which if it wasn't cut short, not a soul would be saved alive. It's talking about nuclear weapons. And in the order, it's a little bit, um, uh, it's chronologically listed backwards in Zechariah 14. You, uh, our editor-in-chief has written about that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the starting match, shall we say, to ignite this fire is Palestinians taking over East Jerusalem. Now, this latest skirmish doesn't relate to Jerusalem, per se, but that's the big prize with the Palestinians. That's where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is. That's where the Dome of the Rock is. That's the reason this land is so important to them. And again, if you tie it in with other prophecies, you could see that the Palestinian takeover of East Jerusalem, a Palestinian conquest, shall we say, a shifting of the borders, is going to be the first domino to fall that sucks in different countries like Iran, like Europe, and eventually it culminates, thankfully, into the return of Jesus Christ. But between then and the flare-up, it's going to be, uh, to say the least, a very rocky road. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, as I mentioned, has written about this quite extensively. Um, the, if our listeners would like to learn more, the place I could recommend them to look at that is the chapter, Jerusalem Violence Triggers Christ Return. That's Jerusalem Violence Triggers Christ Return. We'll leave a link to that in show notes. as a chapter from his booklet on the prophet Zechariah, which describes that uh, what why we watch the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and what it means for the rest of the world. Well, thank you, Mihailo Zekic, for watching the Middle East and what it means for the rest of the world so closely for us. A never-ending war indeed. You're listening to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We've reviewed the bank crisis in the U.S., the farm crisis in the Netherlands, China developing the circulatory system for an economic superpower, and the smoldering case of dynamite that is the Middle East. Ahead, the coronation of the King of England and why it matters. Stay with us.
Hello and welcome back to Trumpet Hour. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. September 8th last year, Queen Elizabeth II died. Uh, the outpouring of support amazed the world, amazed me, surprised a lot of our trumpet staff. Uh, she died in Scotland in the procession from Balmoral to ultimately London was like nothing I've ever seen. It, it amazed me to see how many Britons, uh, how many British still care, uh, cared so much for, for their queen. Her funeral obviously filled with ceremony and pageantry. Uh, but on September 8th, her son, Prince Charles, became King Charles III. And May 6th, tomorrow he will be officially coronated. So the coronation of the King of England is now here. And we Americans are interested in the British monarchy. Some of us don't even know why, but many, many are. And so let's start, ironically, with an American to give us a little bit about what we know about tomorrow's coronation compared to that of Queen Elizabeth's 70 years ago. Yeah, like you said, this is a ceremony with a very long history. I think the earliest recorded coronation um, procession similar to this one was, goes all the way back to um, uh, 574 uh, AD. Uh, although this one will be a little different, uh, King Charles has made a point that he's really trying to uh, modernize the monarchy. I think the phrase that Buckingham Palace has used is a trimmed down modern monarchy. So compared to his mother's coronation ceremony, which actually lasted three hours, uh, this one will only be an hour. Uh, it will be uh, the procession leading to... Um, leading to Westminster Abbey will be a bit shorter. Queen Elizabeth II had a five-mile uh, journey through London back to Buckingham Palace. Uh, well, uh, King Charles will only be just over a mile, about 1.3 miles. Uh, the guest list has been pared down quite a bit. Um, uh, Queen Elizabeth had uh, 8,250 dignitaries in attendance. Well, uh, this one will be about 2,000, so um, almost a quarter. Uh, and it'll be, and this actually some Britons uh, and Americans might actually appreciate, uh, it'll be significantly cheaper as well. Uh, his mother's adjusted for inflation cost about uh, $92 million in today's money. Uh, I don't know exactly how much one this one's going to cost, but based on some of the other statistics, it might be roughly a third of that. Mr. Miller there mentioned the guest list as well as trimming down. That's something that a lot of people have their eye on. Family, uh, shall we say, uh, negative coverage about uh, different members of the family is nothing, royal family is nothing new, uh, including at coronations. When the late queen had hers, she invited uh, King Edward VIII, the man who abdicated, to marry Wallace Simpson over, and he declined. Um, we have some interesting uh, figures on the guest list this time around, too. We have Charles's son, Prince Harry, who famously made a very public break with the royal family, uh, calling it racist and uh, whatnot. He'll be there. His wife, Meghan Duchess of Sussex, won't be. Also in presence will be uh, Charles's brother, Andrew, uh, Duke of York, who um, has had some uh, allegations uh, made against him over the past bit of time um originally the royal dukes which would have included harry and andrew uh, would have paid homage to the king that ceremony has been scrapped they'll just watch from the sidelines well it's been it's been democratized hasn't it the uh, homage that's that that's one of the big controversial things yeah in, in a sense i mean 
like you saw that you see where they're going to invite everybody watching on TV and everybody to 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 pay homage if they want to. Um, yeah, well, which hasn't gone down well. Yeah, yeah well, technically, um, Harry and Andrew, from uh, re what reports suggest, will be visiting as private, uh, just spectators. Which I mean, there you go for democratizing. Um, with the go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'd love if they did a Carolyn of Brunswick. Um, you know, coronation of George the Fourth. His wife wasn't invited, and so his wife was there hammering on the door of Westminster Cathedral while the uh, coronation was was going ahead without her inside. So oh, there have been there have obviously been uh, uh, quite a quite a few uh, things happen at coronations over the years. We're really watching this one though. Uh, it starts at eleven a.m. I believe five a.m. here in Oklahoma uh, for those who want to get up very early to see it see it live but but this there's something different about this coronation for sure richard palmer yes they are i mean changes are normal every coronation is a bit different and they always scale but like there isn't there isn't one set script that they've all followed but i think when you look what what has changed it is quite significant there are you know there are cuts there are trims there are a few additions as well uh, there's a watering down of language. You know, for example, uh, when uh, Queen Elizabeth was presented with the sword of offering, she was said that it was she was she she was said, "Well, may you use it as the minister of God for the terror and punishment of evildoers." We're not keen on terrorizing evildoers today. Instead, that's been replaced with uh, to resist evil and defend the good. So you've got those kind of changes. But I think the most significant to me is is or one of the most significant is this inclusion of other religions. Uh, this is something where Prince Charles is, or King Charles has left his personal mark. Uh, and this is something that he has pushed personally, actually with some resistance from the Church of England, because they've kind of said, well, this is a church ceremony. You, you, we can't include other. It's, it's against canon law. We can't do that. He still found a way. So as this procession that you heard about from Andrew comes in, it will be led by a cross that has what are supposedly relics of the true cross gifted to the king by the pope so they're going to really play pride of place in this in this whole coronation that's significant uh and then at the end after the king is crowned and the service kind of ends and you have uh they sing the national anthem and they get ready to leave you've got this entire new section that is called the greeting by the faith leaders and so you have um leaders from britain's jewish community hindu sikh muslim and buddhist will all come before the king and they will say uh you know in unison your majesty as neighbors in faith we acknowledge the value of public service we unite with the people of all faiths and beliefs in thanksgiving and service with you for the common good and you see in this both a reflection of the changes that Britain has gone through. In 1973, you know, the, the, the coronation ceremony is fundamentally a church service, a Church of England church service. It's built around the Book of Common Prayer. In 1973, that follows a structure that the vast majority of people in England would be very familiar with. Today, without even changing, that same structure is something that looks very antiquarian and outdated. And and so then the inclusion of you know, the in general the people that really care about religion over here are those from these other religions, uh, and so that's uh, it reflects a changing Britain and it reflects the way that Charles wants to change himself and to change the monarchy to try and fit in with this. 
And this is something that Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote about even uh, just last summer. Uh, this direction that was clear Prince, Ch Har Prince Charles wanted to go in back then. What he said back then is that's not to say that the Protestant reformed religion is the one true religion. But to the extent that it followed the Bible, Britain was blessed for maintaining it. Today, however, Britain is a morass of secularism, dangerous multicultural religious confusion, and submission to the religion of Europe that it once strongly opposed. So what we're seeing is a move away from what was biblical in Britain's religious foundations to something that is dramatically more, more secular. And for a, a monarchy that's rooted in the Bible, you've got to think that that is a uh, potentially terminal sickness. The monarch, as far as we know, will still be presented with the Holy Bible as part of that ceremony in a church, Westminster Abbey, as you say. Yes, that's right. They'll be the same. You know, he'll be presented with this with the, with the same words that were presented to to, to Queen Queen Elizabeth. You know, this is the most valuable book the world affords. But those words just kind of ring hollow in today's Britain, where I mean, if you did a poll, I would guess that very few people in the country, very few attending, would say they agree with that phrase. Uh, you know, we may say it at a formal function, but we're certainly not following it or even attempting to follow it as best as 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 we understand. And yet, as you said, ironically, right in that book is a is a phrase that uh, really would would change the whole complexion, or would have changed the whole complexion of such a coronation. Yes, the Bible talks about that God gave David a throne uh, to be a light to him and his sons forever. You, God, there's a there's a lot of talk about a throne in the Bible, a throne that God gave to David, a throne that Jesus Christ will sit on, and it's a throne that God uses as, as a light. And there's a continuity to the to to the British royal family, a descent that goes all the way back from David and God preserved that throne uh, as a light. But you see where that throne is heading and you see some of those things even that are included in the coronation and you see why you know, that throne can no longer be used in that function as a light. And so God has had to make some changes in how he uses that throne, but he absolutely promises that he will preserve it so that there's a light there and a lamp there always uh, as a just a, a pointing the whole world uh, towards a fantastic, fantastic hope. And that's something that Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry goes into in more detail in his book, The The New Throne of David. The New Throne of David, you can find that at thetrumpet.com slash literature, thetrumpet.com slash literature, The New Throne of David, and The United States and Britain in Prophecy. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us for today's Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Email us your thoughts, letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. And thank you to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production, as always. I'm Philip Nice. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.